Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. I don't know about you, I'm probably 99% certain that like me, there has been a moment in your life where you were having a conversation or a discussion or an argument with somebody. And, and as you're having this, this talk with that person, they say something and, and you just don't know what to say. You just don't know what to say at all. The words just aren't coming to you. And so you leave the conversation frustrated and you're thinking about it and thinking about it. And then like a day later, you finally come and put together the perfect comeback for what you should have said to that person uh, at that moment. And it's frustrating because you know that you had something to say. You know that you wanted to say something. But oftentimes, the thing that we want to say, the thing that we know that, that we, we want to, to have said in that moment, we don't say it because we couldn't think of it. We couldn't put into words what it was that we were feeling. And it's probably something that is very, very common And today, that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit. Uh, Today's message is especially, specifically talking to those of you, those of us who call ourselves Christians. So if you are here in the room today, or if you're watching us online and you're not a Christian, uh, you can take the week off. There's going to be nothing that you have to do at the end of the message today. But I want to talk specifically to those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about um, being prepared. And so our series is called Prepared. And the, the subtitle of the series is Defending Your Faith Without Losing Your Mind. And I think that this is something that all of us who are Christians that we've experienced at some time in our lives. Because I think one of the most frustrating things about being a Christian is when you run into those moments where you're having a conversation with somebody, somebody is talking to you about what you believe, and, man, they they say things, you know, they say things that that just kind of throw you for a loop, or they say things in the conversation that really aren't looking for an answer. You know, they're like hit-and-run comments. They just throw them out there. A lot of times, we experience this when we're at holiday parties with relatives or at work, and people will kind of call you out like, hey, we're all going to a party this weekend, but I know we can, Caesar can't go because you got church, right? You're one of those people. Right? So they call you out there, or you'll have relatives that will just say things like they've got these canned statements that they say every single year at Thanksgiving. It's not because they want to engage in a conversation with you. What they want to do is just shut you down and not talk to you at all. And it wasn't like that you could sit them down, and if you had you know, about 15 minutes of their undivided attention, that you could just talk to them, and you could give them an answer for the question that they're asking, or for the question that they're implying. And... And even if you weren't convincing to them, at least you would leave them with something to think about. And and you probably are already kind of picturing in your mind the the person or people in your life who who are like this. And and it's not like if you had said to them, hey, here's this book that you can read or, or, or this podcast that you could listen to, that they would actually do it. Because they won't. Because they're not interested. 
all they're really interested in is kind of taking a shot at you or throwing a comment out there and then not having to discuss it at all. And I, I've, I've had this happen to me many, many times. Conversations will come up, and I'll hear a comment about this. They'll tell, this, they'll tell a story about that. What I love is when they start telling the stories about how they used to go to church and the bad thing that happened to them at church. And I want to tell them about the great experiences that I've had at church, but they don't want to hear it. And so you end up not being able to say anything. And it's frustrating because... If, you're, if, you, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're confident about being a follower of Jesus. You're confident, confident about that. But you just don't have the words to say, especially when the person who's talking to you or the person who's throwing out those comments says, says something that you know, kind of takes you by surprise or, or, or pushes you off balance and, and you don't know exactly what it is that you want to say, how it is that you want to respond. And... A lot of times we end up feeling stupid because we should be able to tell people why it is that we believe or why it is that we call ourselves a Christian or, or what it is that our faith is all about. And, then, and there's this, this interesting thing that every once in a while you will find somebody. You'll find somebody who's really, really interested. They really, really want to know, you know, hey, what is it you believe? And they want you to talk to them. They want you to tell them a little bit about your faith. But that is very, very rare. And I know for me, there have been times uh, where people have asked me, they've really been interested in asking me, and they really wanted to know. And I started going in one direction, and then I went into this different direction, and all of a sudden I was completely flummoxed, and I, uh, I had made it more complicated for the person than it was when they first started. If they hadn't asked me, they probably would know more than after they had asked me. And so, what I want to do today is I want us to look at a passage in Scripture. It's actually an account of something that happened to a guy named Peter. Now, Peter was, uh, Peter was uh, a businessman turned evangelist who lived at the time of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' followers. And in this account of this thing that happened to Peter, Peter is going to tell us what he thinks and how he thinks that we need to respond to people who um, are taking a shot at our faith or taking a shot at what we believe and not giving us that 15, 20 minute, 30 minute opening to be able to talk to them really about what it is that we believe. So here's Peter. It is just after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has gone up to heaven. And Peter, uh, who was a fisherman, he's out fishing one day. And he, you know, at this time when they went fishing, like many of you who fish, that he went out early, early in the morning, way before dawn, he's out fishing. Because he knows that that's when the fish are out. When the water is cool, he goes out, he went out to fish. So he's coming back in, it's now mid-morning, and he sees Jesus. And he's heard of Jesus, and, and he's heard Jesus talking, and maybe Peter is on his boat, and he's pulling up his nets, and he's wrapping up everything on his boat, and in the distance he can still kind of hear Jesus preaching to the crowd. And Jesus walks over to Peter, and he says, let's go fishing. And Peter's like, uh, aren't you a carpenter? You know, I am the fisherman. Let me decide when we go fishing. But Jesus was pretty insistent, let's go fishing. And so Peter went with Jesus, and they went, and they went fishing. And Jesus said, over there, 
And Peter dropped his net and he got more fish than he ever, ever got. And so here's Peter and, and he's, he's experienced this thing with Jesus. And, and Jesus says, come and follow me. And so Peter does. Peter drops everything. He drops his business. He walks away from it. He hands it back to his parents. He calls his brother James and his brother John. And the two, three of them, they go and they spend the next three years there following Jesus. They leave it all behind. And then, Jesus, and then Peter... And this is the part that I, I love because I listen... I, I think about Peter who is the... the the person that, one of the people that Jesus left this entire movement that he started with. Peter that, for, uh, for those of you who are Catholic, that you believe that Peter is the Pope, the first Pope. And, and for those of you that are not, we, you know, we believe Peter is, is, was one of the apostles of Jesus. He was one of the founders of the Christian church. And here is this guy who spent time with Jesus, and at the end of his time with Jesus, he lost his faith. He lost his faith in Jesus. He thought that it was game over. And then he jumped back into his faith and he ended up becoming the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And do you know what it was that caused him to jump back into that? What it was that caused him to go from being a person who had completely lost his faith and thought that and questioned everything that he thought that he knew about Jesus to becoming the person who led the church? It was one thing, an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. That is what jumped him back into his faith. And so here's Peter, and he's writing these books. Uh, we record, or, or Scripture records, two books that Peter wrote, and uh, they weren't very creative with book naming at the time. And so the first book that Peter wrote is called First Peter. Um, and so he's writing to the first century believers in First Peter 3, and this is what he says. He says this, he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, here is the foundation of what we're, why we're looking at this and what Peter is going to try to say. What we're going to see here and what Peter is going to try to tell us is how do we do that? How do we get that response, those, those words that we say when we're having a conversation with somebody and sometimes they give you that opening, but they don't really give you that opening because they want to find out more. They give you that opening so you'll stick your foot in it so that he can slam the door shut on it. How do we, what do we do with that? And so this is what Peter says. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? In other words, if you're out feeding the poor, if you're out being generous with what you have, if you're out doing all of the things that you know you're supposed to do, who is going to attack you for that? That makes sense. But he knows, as we've seen too often in our culture today, that even when you're doing good, it doesn't mean you're not going to be attacked. And so he says, he goes on in the next verse and he says this. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right... You are blessed. And then he quotes this passage that was written by the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, and this is something that when the people who he's writing to heard, that they would immediately recognize. He says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And so in this passage, Peter introduces to us this idea that you can do good but you can still suffer. That you can suffer for your faith 
and for the behaviors that flow out of your faith. Now, we talk about people being persecuted, and here in the United States, as of now, it's still really not as big of a deal as it is in many other places in the world. And yet today, there are more Christians being persecuted around the world than there has ever been at any time in history. There are churches that are being bombed. There are Christians that are being killed all because of their faith. But here's Peter. And Peter is not arguing with the people that were around him. And he he wasn't saying to them because all of them had gods. They had these other gods that they had been worshiping. And Peter wasn't going to them and saying, listen, let me tell you about my God because my God is better than your God. And here are the reasons why. That's not what Peter was saying to them. Peter was saying, listen, all of those things that you have been worshiping aren't really gods at all. Let me tell you about the real God. And this really, really upset a lot of people. Upset a lot of people. And his culture that he was in, even the people who were devoted to their gods, who were religious people at that time, did not trust anybody who only believed in one God. And so Peter says, listen, you may suffer even if you're doing the right thing. But he says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And then listen to what he says. He says, but, but instead, instead of being frightened, instead of fearing their threats, he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And now that word revere has an implication of, of to dedicate or to set aside or, 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 or to put in a special place. And so Peter is saying, in our hearts, we have to set aside and we have to put in this special place this idea that Christ is Lord. And then he says, and this is the part where he's talking to you and me the same as he would be talking to the people that were reading this for the first time. He says, always be prepared. And in the Greek translation, that phrase, always be prepared, actually is better translated as, be ready always for defense. Be ready to give a defense. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, for everyone who asks you to give an explanation for the hope that you have. For the hope that you have. Now listen, a lot of people and Christians over the years that we've used this verse and we've looked at this verse and we've said, okay, we always have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. But let me tell you what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying be prepared to defend your Christian worldview. This verse is not saying... Be prepared to defend your political views that you think are based on Scripture. He's not saying be prepared to defend the Bible. Be prepared to defend your doctrine. He's not saying be prepared to defend your religion. He's not even saying be prepared to defend your faith. He's not saying to be prepared to defend your church. What he's saying is, is you make sure that you have an explanation. Be prepared to give an explanation for the hope that you have. And see, there is a big difference. 
Because there are many things about Scripture, about the Bible, that it is hard to defend. There are a lot of things. It's hard to explain some of the things that are written in the Bible. And especially today, when, when uh, culture has tried to tell us that faith and science can't exist together, that everything that is scientific is put up against our faith and says that science disproves our faith. And so, Peter is telling us, listen, we don't have to defend that. That is not what you're called to defend. That is not what you have to give an explanation for. Not your theology, not your scripture, nothing about that. He says all of those things, listen, those are great, but don't worry about that. Direct your conversation to one single thing. Why are you following Jesus? Why have you made the decision to follow Jesus? And then Peter relates two specifics of hope. In, he, he says this. He says, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. Now, that phrase there, new birth, is the Greek word anagenano. Anagenano. And this is significant because anagenano doesn't mean... has an implication of being born again, new birth, but being born again to the Father. See, he's making a specific reference that when we're born again, this new birth comes to us, it is a new birth to God. That's what he's, that's, he's using this very, very specific word. He goes on and he writes this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is how we get our hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 13 he says, Therefore, and, he, and in this translation it uses this phrase, with minds that are alert and fully sober. And the implication in that thing is roll up your sleeves. Fasten your seatbelt. Something is about to happen. Make sure that you're ready. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, he says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And that word revealed is the same word that is used to, uh, is, is the same word that is the title of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. He's tying together what happened with Jesus with what is going to happen. He goes on in, in, in verse 21 and he says, Through him, Jesus, through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. So here's Peter and he's setting us up now. And what he's saying to you and to me is this. He's saying, listen, a lot of people are going to try to confuse you. A lot of people are going to try to ask you a lot of different things. But the one thing I want you to focus on, the one thing I want you to always bring it back to is, why is it that you have hope? What is it that your hope is based in? And he's saying, listen, my hope is based in the fact that Jesus died for my sins and then he rose again. That was what jump-started Peter from completely losing his faith to jumping back in and becoming one of the most influential people in the church. Was that he knew that Jesus died for his sins and that he rose again. And so, 
in this next step, he tells us, now listen, you're going to respond, you're going to give your hope, but he's going to tell us that when we talk to people, that we have to be careful about our tone. In verse 15, he says, but, but, as you talk to people, but, as you start to defend your hope, as you start to talk about why it is that you've decided to follow Jesus, do this with gentleness, humility, with courteousness, and respect. Because he's, he's saying here that, listen, the people who are going to be coming up to you and, and, and that you are going to be talking to, they may not come at you with respect. But when you talk to them, you're going to talk to them with gentleness and respect. And he says, keeping a clear conscience. In other words, don't say something that you're going to have to apologize for later. Have you ever had to apologize for something you said? Have you ever not apologized for something you said? And still not talking to that person? See, Peter is reminding us, listen... Don't do something. Make sure you walk away with a clear conscience. Don't do something that later on you're going to feel guilty about or that you're going to have to find a way to apologize for. And then he says, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, in other words, who speak against the good way that you lead your life, may be ashamed of their slander. In other words... Live the kind of life that when people talk about you, if they're going to talk bad about you, they have to lie. Live the kind of life that the only way somebody can say something negative about you is if they are making it up completely. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. See, in this particular culture where he lived in, it was very, very easy to not live a moral life and completely blend in into the crowd. And Peter is saying to us, listen, if you are selfless, if you are generous, if you are compassionate, it is hard for people to criticize you. And what was happening in the culture at this time was that the way that the Christians were living was... Well, it was, it was really ruining the reputation of the people that weren't Christians. Because in this time, the people who weren't Christians, they were okay if you had a lack of compassion. They were okay if you mistreated women. They were okay if you mistreated slaves. They were okay if you mistreated children. But in Christianity, it did not. And that is why in the first, in the, in the, the first century of the church, so many women became Christians. Because they would look into this group of Christ followers and see how they treated the women in their group. And they said, I want to be a part of that. I want to be there. And so Christians made the pagans look bad. And even in our culture today, there are many, many places. And I hope that for even for us, that there are times where people look at us because we are followers of Jesus and say, you know what? I don't believe everything that that person believes, but I sure want to have them as a friend. 
You, you've heard me say this before, that, that, that we want to live a life where people will say, you know what, I'm not a Christian, I don't really believe any of that stuff, but I sure hope that my daughter marries a Christian. Because I know that he's not going to leave her. Amen. I sure hope that my son marries a Christian. You know, I don't believe in any of that Jesus stuff, but I hire as many Christians as I can. Because I know that they work hard and they're honest. This was the impression that the first century Christians left on their culture. And the culture looked at them, and because culture looked at them, culture hated them. Now listen, a lot of times, and for those of you who are parents, you know this, uh, a lot of times um, when people look at us, one of, one of the things that I, 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 I try to, um, that I have tried to, uh, instill in my children is to make sure that you know that you should always do the right thing. Because when people attack you for doing the right thing, it's not because they think that you're doing the wrong thing. It's that when you do the right thing, it convicts them that they're doing the wrong thing. And that's why they attack you. And this is the same thing that happened in the early church. It's the same thing that is happening today for all of us. That many people who see, I don't know if I've, I've told you this story. I, I told it to my students a, a few weeks ago. But uh, I used to be one of those guys who, uh, and, and if there are any of you in here, I apologize. This is not an attack against you. But I used to be one of those guys that after I unloaded my stuff into my car at the grocery store, that I took the cart in between the cars and I popped it up onto the curb and left it there. You know, when you're turning into that empty parking space and you get there and there's a cart right there? That used to be me. I used to do that. And one day, I was was going and and, um, I was unloading my car. And uh, and this was in, in Florida. I was unloading my car. And as I was unloading the car and I had finished putting all my groceries in, and again, this is Florida, so it's like 150 degrees out, right? And the sun is coming down on you. And so I want to get into my air-conditioned car as quickly as possible. And the cart return is way over there. So I don't want to go over there and return my cart. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to pop it right here next to the car. I'm going to pull out, get out of here. And this kid, who he must have been 16, 17 years old, he comes out of the grocery store while I'm unloading. And he um, goes to his car, which is even farther away from the cart return. And he unloads his groceries, and then he goes and he walks his cart back to the cart return, and he puts it in there. And so in the heat, with all the sweat, I'm watching this kid. And my first response is, well, I can't tell you my first response because it would be not very pleasant. No, no, no. But my second response was, boy... Uh, why am I not like that kid? And it convicted me. I was angry because I knew he was doing the right thing, but then I recognized I should be doing the right thing too. And since then, I have never ever left my cart by the side of the car. I make my kids return it. (laughs) But listen, there are examples of this kind of thing happening to Christians throughout history. 
About 70 years after Jesus was crucified, right around 111 to 113 AD, the emperor of the Roman Empire was a, was a, a, was a man named Trajan. And we've got a picture of him. Uh, this is Trajan, a statue of Trajan, the emperor. Um, and I think this statue is a statue of him that's in London. Um, and, at this, and, and the emperors of Rome at the time had different ideas about um, emperor worship. Because if the, the different emperors, some of them believed that you had to worship the emperor as a god. Now Trajan was very practical. He didn't want people to worship him as a god because he thought he was a god. He wanted people to worship him as god because it, it was for political reasons. It was, it was to show loyalty. That if you would worship him as a god, then you would be loyal to him. And so he went out and he made sure that everybody in the Roman Empire worshipped him as a god. But these pesky Christians, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't worship him. Because they believed in a one true god. And so the Christians were persecuted because they wouldn't worship him. Now, the Jewish Christians, the Jews who became followers of Jesus, they had a free pass. But all of the Gentiles, all of the people who didn't grow up Jewish, who weren't born Jewish, they were persecuted. They were tortured. They were killed because they would not worship Trajan. So there was a, a, an, another man who was a governor of uh, a tiny uh, province in what is today Turkey. And his name was Pliny the Younger. Now, Pliny the Younger is... It, this is a, a, a picture that we have of Pliny the Younger. Uh, Pliny the Elder was his uh, uncle. Uh, but Pliny the Elder died in the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. And so Pliny the Younger is, is one of the governors throughout the, the Roman Empire. And uh, Pliny the Younger gets a letter from the emperor, as the emperor is writing letters to all of the governors throughout, throughout the empire. And in this letter, he says, start arresting the Christians. And he doesn't really give him a very specific reason for why. You know, the whole thing is kind of sketchy. He says they're traitors, and, and they have these beliefs that are, that are kind of dangerous, and their habits and their customs are, are, are going against uh, what we believe. And, and so it didn't make a lot of sense to, to Pliny the Younger, but he was the governor, and the other guy is the emperor, so he did it. So he goes around, and, and he starts arresting Christians. Now, history has preserved a series of letters that were written between Trajan and Pliny the Younger. In fact, you could Google them right now, and you can find the text of these letters that went back and forth between the governor of this small uh, area in Turkey and the emperor of Rome. And so Pliny, he's, reading this, he's, he's, he's writing this letter back to the emperor because he's now arresting all these Christians. And he's like, okay, I've arrested them, but now what? What do I do now? Because for him, he didn't even know what a Christian was. They weren't very big at the time. But the emperor says, okay, arrest them. So he sets out and he gets his people. And they start rounding up the Christians. And they start interrogating them. And he starts torturing them. Even putting them to death. And there were a lot of Christians who were Roman citizens, and he knew that he couldn't torture the Roman citizens. So he would arrest the Roman citizens and send them to Rome, but he would get their Christian slaves, and he would torture them, interrogate them, and torture them some more to try to find out what this traitorous behavior was. 
And so finally, you know, he's looking around and he's arrested a lot of Christians. And there's a lot of them. And he doesn't know what to do. So he writes back to the emperor and he says, okay, we have them. We've infiltrated them. We've interrogated them. Now what do we do? And then in one of his letters, um, it says this. This is the text right from the letter. Because now he's telling us, he's, he's telling the emperor what it is that he has discovered. After countless people being tortured, after all of those hours and hours of interrogation, he's now going to tell the emperor, this is what he figured out. This is what he has discovered from that. And this is from the letter. It says this. The sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. In other words, after all of this torture, after all of these people that we have beat, that we have killed, after all all that we have gone through, the sum and substance, all that we can figure out that these guys are doing wrong is this is that they're waking up early in the morning, before dawn, they're coming together, they're singing a hymn to Jesus as if He was their God. That's the only thing that they could find. And in those days, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have books. They didn't have YouTube. So the only way that they could pass on the teachings of Jesus was to sing it. That's how they learned about Jesus. So they would come together early in the morning, before anybody had to go to work, before anybody had to make their gym appointment, before anybody had to make breakfast. They gathered together in people's homes and they sang responsively, responsively, a hymn to Christ as to a God. And then, after that, he wrote this, and, after they had done the singing, to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, so they come together, it's early in the morning, and after they're done singing, they, they take an oath to each other. They take an oath. But not to a crime. See, he's, he's saying, listen, there are a lot of people who take oaths. There are a lot of... We see this today with gangs, right? Gangs come together and they have to take an oath to each other, but then after that they're going out and they're doing things they shouldn't be doing. So here is Pliny and he's figured out that this is what they do. They gather together and then they take an oath. And listen to what the oath is. They take an oath not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery. Not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust, when called upon to do so. This is what they take an oath to do. And Pliny the Younger, who has arrested all these people and has discovered that this is the worst thing that they're doing, he must have been thinking to himself, why are we arresting these people? Because these just may be the best citizens in our city. These just may be the best people that we have. Why are we arresting them? They are coming together early in the morning before the sun comes up to promise each other that they're not going to steal, that they're going to be honest, that they're not going to mess with anyone, that they're not going to steal from anyone, that they are going to honor marriages 
They're going to do what we, they say that they're going to do. I mean, we've investigated them. We've tortured them. These aren't criminals. Now, imagine for a moment what would happen in our cities. What would happen just in our city here? If all of the people who call themselves Christians did this. Woke up in the morning before dawn. Before the day starts, and gathered together in people's homes and sang and then made this oath to each other to not commit fraud, theft, or adultery, to not falsify their trust, and to not refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Imagine if everybody who said that they were a follower of Jesus did this just here in our city. They did it, they took that oath, and they actually meant it. Can you imagine what this city would be like if we actually did that? And it would be hard to criticize Christians. It would be hard to find fault with people who call themselves followers of Jesus. And that is what Peter told them to do. And that is exactly what the first century Christians did. They did exactly what he said to do. He says, you can convince them by the way that you live your life. And then the letter ends like this. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. And then he says, but ordinary and innocent food. Now, that seems kind of weird, right? Ordinary and innocent food. But listen, this is, this is important for him to say because he's telling, he's telling the emperor, listen, those rumors are not true. You know what the rumor was? Christians ate babies. That was the rumor. That is what people were saying about Christians, that they ate babies, that they ate their flesh and drank their blood. Now, can you guess where that rumor came from? Communion. The Christians would take communion together. And if you didn't understand, if you did not know exactly what was happening, and you walked into a group of Christians taking communion, and they said that this is the body and this is the blood, and they were eating it, you might think the same thing. And so Pliny is saying, listen... They're not eating babies. They come together and they eat food, but it's just ordinary and innocent food. There's nothing special about it. In verse 17, it says, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We've all suffered, right? We've all had moments in our lives where something happened and we just had to pay the price for it, even if it's something that we didn't do. And so Peter is saying, listen, if we're going to suffer anyway, wouldn't we rather suffer for doing something good than for doing something bad? And Peter is saying, listen, if you do suffer for doing something good, you are just like Jesus. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus suffered and we were the ones that benefited. So here's the question that we need to be prepared to answer. This is the question that whenever the topic comes up, that whatever 
whatever comment that you might hear, the question that we have to answer, even if it's not the question that's being asked, the question that we have to answer is this. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? That is the question that we want to answer. Now listen, their questions, their comments to you are not going to be about that. They're going to focus on lifestyle. They're going to focus on, on, on the church. They're going to focus on, on the things that they read or that they've heard about that happened in the Old Testament, the miracles. They're going to focus on whether or not there was an actual six days of creation. Was it a six literal days? They're going to focus on whether or not there was really a flood. They're going to focus on, hey, how did this arrow, metal arrowhead float on the water? They're going to focus on how did the waters part? And, and maybe the water parted, but it was only three three inches and it just dried up. Those are the things that they're going to want to ask you and talk about and criticize. And in all of these verses, Peter is saying, listen, forget about all of those things. Whenever they bring that up, I want you to bring it all back to one question. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? Because he's saying that the one thing that we have to be able to defend is not our political views. It's not our religious views. It's not the church that we belong to or the doctrine we believe. The one thing we have to be able to defend is why have we put our faith and our hope in Jesus? Why have we done that? Because the reason that we take the Old Testament seriously, the reason that we take the miracles seriously, the reason that we are committed to the local church, the reason that we are okay with having to suffer in certain situations when it comes to our faith is tied directly to why we have chosen to follow Jesus. And the wisest thing to do, because sometimes you're only going to get 15 seconds. Sometimes you're going to just get one shot at responding. And the wisest thing for us to do is no matter what the question is, no matter what the comment is, is to tie everything back to what is our faith in Jesus based on. So here is my suggestion. Here's my suggestion. And this suggestion is based on what Scripture says. It's, this suggestion is based on what Peter said. Uh, this is... What Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Because Paul said, and Peter said, that our faith is based on something that happened. That Jesus died and that he rose again. That the church grew, the early church in the first century grew, not because they had Bibles that they were defending, but because they believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so here's my suggestion. That the answer to every question, that the response to every comment is this. I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. No matter what they may come at you with, no matter what question may they may ask, that we bring it all back to the reason for our faith is that I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. He died for my sin and he rose from the dead. And, and there's more. And we're going to talk more about this next week because one of the biggest 
oppositions that people have to being a follower of Jesus is that they can't believe everything in the Bible. And so, when you're saying it, and if you get the chance to get past the first sentence, that you say, I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead, but I don't believe it because the Bible says so, it's better than that. See, there was a time in our country where it was good enough to say that we believe something because the Bible says so. But we are living in a post-Christian culture. And it is not enough for people to say, the Bible says so. In fact, in the culture that we live in today, if we say that the Bible says so, that they automatically dismiss it. So I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. Is the heart of what our hope is in. But I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And so when you get into that moment, when you have that opportunity, when you have a a, a chance to respond to a comment or to answer a question, then... You have to figure out what that answer is going to be. This is just a suggestion. And this is what I say. And this is how I respond. Because it ties everything back, not to something that I made up, but to something that I believe. That Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. So here's your homework. Whether you're here with us today uh, live or if you're watching us online, here's your homework for next week. Something for you to think about. Why are you a follower of Jesus? What's your answer? Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.